Um, I, I'm not sure you understand just how significant that story is. It's a quick little two-minute video. These are public school campuses. In the cultural climate that we are in right now, public schools saying yes to followers of Jesus stepping on campus and talking about Jesus. And the reason for that is because whether you are religious or irreligious or something in between, uh, the undeniable sort of common denominator for human beings is the need to be loved. And that's why I'm so, I'm so proud of the incredible men and women, many of you, who give so much of your time and your energy to serving kids in our city through Kids Club. Because you're extending love, which is why there's such an openness and receptivity. And this is a, a beautiful sort of segue to the idea we want to explore today. If we've never met, my name's Jay. I'm part of the team. And um, you came on a wonderful Sunday. For the entire month of August, as a church family, we've been exploring through this series called The Greatest. We've been exploring, really, the heartbeat of our church, why we exist. And so if you're new to us, you should know our church, Westgate Church, uh, it's just a group of ordinary men and women, just like you, who are trying to be disciples of Jesus and to join him in the work of inviting others to be disciples of Jesus. And a disciple is essentially an apprentice, somebody who is learning and living the way of Jesus. And put simply, we believe that the way of Jesus, simply put, is the way of love. And so the reason our church family exists is to be a community of love toward God as we receive God's love and return that love back to him in a life of worship, a life of love toward one another as a church family, and a life of love toward our neighbors, toward those in need, both physical and spiritual, emotional uh, and otherwise. So to begin, I wanna, I wanna tell you a quick story this morning. I'll show you an image here. This is the image of a stud, an absolute stud, named Shavash Karapetian. And Shavash Karapetian throughout the 1960s was a world-class championship swimmer from Armenia. And then in 1976, one day at the end of a long training session, he had run about 12 miles. He ends his run uh, near this place where he usually ended his runs called Yerevan Lake. And at the lake, he heard and saw this massive commotion. He saw all of these people up along the waterline shouting and screaming. So he runs down to the lake and he discovers that a trolley bus with 90 passengers inside has somehow, someway fallen off the tracks and driven itself into the lake. And it was 80 feet offshore. And at this point, it was 30 feet submerged down underwater. Now, Karapetian, being a world-class swimmer, what did he do? He immediately took off his clothes and jumped into the water. He dove down 30 feet, and using the strength of his own legs, he kicked in the rear window of the trolley bus, and he was able to save 20 lives that day. He sustained such significant damage, specifically to his legs, that it effectively ended his athletic career. What's really interesting about Karapetian is this is not the first time he played Superman. A couple of years earlier, he was on a bus 
and the bus driver had gotten out of the bus to try to fix a mechanical problem, but the bus driver had accidentally left the bus on neutral. The bus begins careening toward a cliff. Karapetian jumps into the front seat and saves everybody on board by turning the bus back around. Eight years after he saved all of these people in the lake, Karapetian happened to be walking by a city street and he saw a burning building and he realized that the firefighters were overwhelmed. They didn't have enough men to save everybody. So Karapetian runs into, literally runs into a burning building and saves dozens of lives. Now you might look at this man and think to yourself, is he Superman? He's not. In fact, in interviews, he has said very clearly, I'm not a hero. Instead, what he says is, I'm a Christian. Shavash Karapetian is a passionate, committed follower of Jesus. And the reason he says on record, the reason he has risked life and limb, the reason he effectively ended his own athletic career to save as many lives as he could is because he takes very seriously Jesus's invitation in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. The law and the prophets is a Jewish way of essentially saying the entirety of scripture. Everything God has spoken to you in the scriptures, the way to live life in the kingdom of God, it all hangs on these two commands. To love God with everything you've got and to love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Karapetian would tell you he is not a hero. He is simply a follower of Jesus like you and me, many of us in this room, trying his best to follow Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as we've been exploring this idea of love throughout the month of August, we have been, if you've been around, you know this, we have been working our way together through uh, the most famous passage not just in the Bible, but maybe the most famous passage in, human, in the history of human literature on love. It is found in a New Testament book that we call 1 Corinthians, written by a first century writer named the Apostle Paul. And he writes this letter to these early Christians in an ancient city called Corinth. And the 13th chapter is the most quoted chapter in weddings, right? The last time you went to a wedding, somebody probably read some excerpt from 1 Corinthians 13. Now, Paul, certainly it's wonderful to use at weddings, but Paul did not write this chapter for weddings. He wrote it for all of us. He wrote it for every follower of Jesus. He essentially was laying out the, the, a vision for what it looks like to be a person of love in the kingdom of God. Now, um, we talked about this earlier, but I think a sort of recap is helpful here. Uh, the city of Corinth, when Paul writes this letter called, that we call 1 Corinthians, uh, when he writes this letter, he is writing, again, to early Christians in what was a fairly influential city in the ancient world called Corinth. Now, Corinth at the time was a very interesting city. We've talked about this before. Corinth, when it was first established as a major city in the Roman Empire, it was intentionally populated with people that were classified as freed persons, freed past tense. 
The reason these people were called freed persons was because freed persons in the first century world were men and women who had once been slaves, but had somehow, some way managed to hustle and work their way out of slavery and gain their freedom. This was rare in the ancient world. It was very difficult to do, but there were people who did it. And when they established Corinth as a city, they took a bunch of people who had done exactly that, the impossible, won their freedom by pulling up their bootstraps and working really hard. And they populated the city with these sorts of people. Because of this, Corinth was one of the rare cities in the ancient first century world where somebody could go to climb the social ladder and make it. Those types of places did not usually exist in the first century world. Typically, it was just you were born into the situation you were born into, and that's just your life, right? You don't really have much of a say in the matter. But Corinth was the sort of city where you could go and have little and work really hard and make it. Because of this, there was a culture of boasting in Corinth. It was considered virtuous to let everybody know how awesome you were. Corinth was essentially first century Instagram. It was basically like the, the center of the humble brag. It's like, I did it, I made it, right? That was Corinth. Now this is important to recognize because of what um, Paul will say here in a moment. Now, before we get to the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 today, again, in light of what I just told you about Corinth, what's really interesting is that in Corinth, because there was such a culture of boasting, um, generosity and altruism and charity, these things were means to self-serving ends. So most people in Corinth, they were not altruistic and charitable and generous to one another for the sake of the other. Most people were altruistic, generous, and charitable for the sake of building up, propping up their own reputation. This was, just, this was a well-known reality in first century Corinth, which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse three, he says this, if I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast. Now we read that and we think to ourselves, that's bad, you shouldn't boast. In the first century world, Paul's original audience would have been like, yeah, for sure, that's what I do, boasting. That's, the, that's my jam, right? I'm like super kind and giving and I let everybody know, right? That's how we roll in Corinth. Paul is deconstructing that reality. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, then I gain nothing. All the boasting in the world gets you nothing if your goodness is not driven by love. This has strong implications for us today as we consider what it looks like for us to love our neighbors. Several years ago, um, when I was on staff at a previous church, we took about a dozen folks from our church and we went to a soup kitchen in town in Santa Cruz and we were serving uh, the homeless population of Santa Cruz and that's a, it's a significant population in Santa Cruz. And this is something we did once every couple of months when I was on staff at this church. And we were serving at the soup kitchen and, and I remember, I mean, most of the time whenever we did this, it was like so life-giving and um, such a perspective shift and uh, just a way to connect with our homeless brothers and sisters in the city. 
But this one night, uh, we're serving at the soup kitchen, and there happened to be another group, not from our church, but from some, maybe it was like a company, and they were doing service hours together or something. They were clearly not followers of Jesus. Um, but they were there serving at the soup kitchen. For the most part, they were lovely, beautiful, wonderful people. But at one point during the evening, I'm in the kitchen, and I think I was like cutting fruit or something, and there were some other people from this other group that were, uh, all, they were also in the kitchen sort of cutting food and prepping the meal. And they were all wonderful, lovely people, except one gentleman. He was, again, we didn't have our homeless brothers and sisters in the kitchen with us, right? They were waiting outside in the courtyard. And so this one gentleman, he, I think because he thought, well, they can't hear me, he's just cracking jokes left and right, but they're really harsh and demeaning. I mean, he, he starts talking about, you know, like, what are we doing here? Like, is anything ever gonna change for these people? You know, just like, sure. And he just starts like, I mean, really, really ripping into these folks. And I remember at first I was like, okay, maybe he's just had a bad day or something, but this goes on and on and on. And so I'm mustering the courage to say something to him when another gentleman that was a part of our church group uh, that was there, he speaks up first and he just kind of gently walks over to this guy and he says, hey man, like that's not, what are you even doing here? What is the point of all of this? I mean, what, what is this strange facade you're putting on? You're trying to extend love and kindness and generosity because clearly all you have really is bitterness and animosity. So why even be here? What, what is this? Now, I remember that scene sort of taking place and unfolding, and, and to, the, to his credit, this gentleman apologized, and he sort of recognized his error, and it ended up being this wonderful conversation. But I share that with you because initially, I felt such judgment toward this man. But as, I, as I've thought about it in hindsight, what I realized is the delta between him and me is, is much tighter than I like to believe. Because the reality is when it comes to my neighbors, and I'm not just talking about homeless people in our midst. I'm not just talking about, although, although they are included, I'm not just talking about those who have financial need or physical need, although those are absolutely our, our neighbors. Talk more about that in a moment. But I'm talking about any neighbor, anybody within the ripple effect of my life, when I'm really honest with myself, the reality is sometimes I too am tempted to prop up my own fragile ego by subtly creating this sort of chasm, like, well, at least I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. And it comes out in this sort of like faux compassion. But deep down inside, I feel all sorts of things, but many, like not really love this is something we've talked about before, but often we find ourselves, when we're really honest with ourselves, we don't really find ourselves loving our neighbor. More often than not, the reality is we neglect our neighbors. And sometimes maybe at our best, we sort of tolerate our neighbors. Often we judge our neighbors or we are suspicious of our neighbors. At worst, sometimes we profit off of our neighbors or we exploit our neighbors. We do so much to our neighbors that isn't love. And much of it driven by our own ego and our own insecurity. This sort of incessant need we have to separate ourselves from the broken in our midst, 
so that we can trick our minds into believing that maybe I am not as broken as I really am. We do this all the time. You do it in your workplace, in your literal neighborhood. You do it with your family and your friends and your social circles. We do this all the time. The writer, Steve Corbett, in his book, When Helping Hurts, he says this. Until we embrace our mutual brokenness, we are likely to do more harm than good. I am not okay, and you are not okay, but Jesus can fix us both. This is the starting point for truly loving our neighbors. And when you step into a soup kitchen and there are drug addicts and the mentally ill who do not have a home, the temptation is to believe that they are broken and you are not. When the reality is they are broken and you are broken and your brokenness simply expresses itself in your life and in the world in different ways. It is only when we enter into that space, not as elite people who have their stuff together here to save the day, but rather enter into that space as mutually broken human beings in need of the rescue and restoration that only Christ can bring. It is only in those moments that we position ourselves to actually love our neighbors. We've been talking about this throughout this series that our sort of working definition of love is to will the good of the other and to seek connection. The truth is, although externally we might do our best to display altruism, charity, generosity, and kindness, if our primary internal motivation is not love, to will the good of the other and to seek mutual connection with them, if that is our, not our primary motivator, then whatever it is we are doing, we are not loving our neighbors. In fact, I actually think altruism, kindness, generosity, charity, these things can get really dangerous without love and with things that are not love. In fact, let me show you this next image. I think altruism, charity, generosity, and kindness without love leads to narcissism. Man, oh, I've, I've got it. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the great savior coming in on my white horse and I'm gonna rescue these people. I've got the money, I've got the resources, I've got the ingenuity. This is narcissism. You are broken, I am broken, and Jesus can fix us all. That's love. That's honesty. That's a sobering assessment of your true self, knowing that you are in need of grace, just like this person or that person. Here's the other thing that I think happens to some of us. Sometimes we extend altruism, charity, generosity, and kindness with this expectation of ROI. We live in the, in the Silicon Valley. Some of you are... VCs or you're in the VC world, right? And you just sort of map on that mindset to your good works in the world, your extension of loving your neighbor. Here's what's really dangerous about an expectation of ROI. It can often lead to nihilism because it doesn't work like business. Sometimes you give and you give and you give of yourself for the sake of the other. And at least on paper, there is no return on investment. And you do that long enough, long enough with an expectation of ROI and you become a nihilist. You're like, what is even the point? 
Does this even make any difference? Why am I giving of myself? These become the most cynical people in our midst. But that's not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus does not say, love your neighbor as yourself, and within two years, you will have a 58% return on investment. Jesus doesn't say that. He just says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. I mean, would you expect return on investment from yourself? I mean, you would hope for it. You would hope that you would become a better person as you grow. But if you didn't, I mean, the reality is you just, you live as yourself. You live in your own body. The reality is, like, it's not hard for us. I mean, for for some of us it is. But for most of us, it's not that hard to to care for ourselves, to love ourselves. You're not doing it because of some expectation of return on investment. So it is with our neighbors. You know, we've all heard uh, the idea that some of us are, like, left-brain people. Those are, like, the engineers and accountants in the room. Any left-brain people? Yes. There's a lot more of you. You're just too ashamed to raise your hand. It's okay. Yeah, this is Silicon Valley. It's like 80% of you. Um, and some of us are right brain people. We're like the broke musicians and artists. Raise your hand. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You're not broke. Um, it's Silicon Valley. <clears throat> now, this is, this is partially true. Left brain, right brain. It is, it is partially true. Uh, but there's this fantastic book called The Other Side of Church, and there's a writer named Jim Wilder. What's really beautiful and profound about him, he is a trained psychologist and a trained theologian. So Jim, just remember, remember the name if that's interesting to you. Jim Wilder, he's written several books, and he marries the two. He essentially sort of marries psychology and theology in a really beautiful and responsible way. And he essentially says, based on extensive research, that every single person on the planet, whether you're left brain or right brain, every single person on the planet, the way you interpret the world and any experience you have, the the interpretation always goes the same path neurologically. Whether you're a left brain or right brain person, every human on the planet experiences every experience of life the same neurological way. And here's what I mean. Every experience you have enters through the back of the right side of your brain. It enters through the back of the right side of your brain. What does that mean? The left side of the brain processes things like speech and strategy and logic and on and on. The right side of your brain is the part of your brain that processes, amongst other things, group identity, belonging, emotional attachment, and relational connection. So what neuroscience is showing us is whether you're an accountant and an engineer or a musician or an artist or something in between, regardless of what you are, regardless of the way you're sort of neurologically wired, every human on the planet, even the accountants in this room, every single one of us, like this, I know that like the CPAs in this room are like, they, have, they don't care about relationships. They do. CPAs care about relationships because every person on the planet experiences every experience they have first and foremost through the back of the brain up the right side of your brain, which calculates relational connection. Do I belong? Am I safe here? Am I seen? Does this person know me? Do they want to know me? Do they care? Every human on the planet experiences every single experience first and foremost relationally. Why does that matter? 
Because if all of us process experiences first and foremost as relational beings seeking safety, connection, and belonging, then the truth is no matter what external expression of loving our neighbor we extend, if we do not extend relational love, a desire to will the good of the other, a desire to seek connection, then what the other will experience from us is something short of love. Every person on the planet experiences everything you do, first and foremost, relationally. One of the most powerful ways to do this, to extend a desire to love, a desire to will the good of the other, is to enter into the pain of the other. Uh, We talk a lot about our local and global compassion efforts. Kids Club serving in Kids Club is one of our expressions, one of our many expressions of local compassion. And it's interesting we call it compassion. You know, the word compassion comes from a Latin word that literally means, it's the conjoining of two words, it literally means with uh, pain or to suffer with. That's literally what it means. Compassion is not doing nice things for people as charity. Compassion is to suffer with those in pain. Frederick Beekner once said, compassion is the knowledge that there can never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. Now, I'm gonna share some data with you just so you get a sense, especially if you're new to our church, just so you get a sense for the sort of church we are trying to be. This is not to pat ourselves on the back. This is just so that you understand the values of our church family. This is just last year alone. I'll just give you some data from last year alone. All through our local and global compassion, suffer with compassion efforts. Last year, we gave $1.9 million outside of our walls. That's a significant portion of the total generosity of our church. We built 75 wells in 16 countries, providing clean drinking water for 66,000 people. We completed 18 beautiful day service projects with more than 1,300 of you, giving more than 5,400 service hours to beautify our city in partnership with our city and our county. We're gonna do it again this October. We were in 11 public schools serving through school impact, serving more than 700 teachers and administrators. This is a great need. My wife is a public high school teacher. It is not easy. Many of you are teachers. We're with you. I know the school year just started. I know who the teachers are because I see the bags under your eyes. Hang in there. Hang in there. June is coming. It's just right around the corner. We can do it. Okay? We can do it. We gave away 91,000 pounds of food to more than 300 families in need through our food pantry ministry. These are just a handful of things. Now I share this with you, not because I'm trying to pat ourselves on the back. I'm grateful we can do better. I think we can do more. I share this with you because I want you to know if you have participated in any way, and I know many of you have, if you have participated in any way, we did not do any of this because we're better than those we served. We did this as a meager, humble way to try to enter into pain, to feel the pain of our neighbors, literal neighbors here in our city and in our county. Again, we don't do any of this because there are good things to do or to drum up good PR. 
We do all of this as an expression of compassion, our attempt to step into the pain of others, even in small ways, and to help where we can. We do this as a way to love our neighbors, to will their good, and to seek connection. This can happen at more than just kind of the church, local, global level. Loving our neighbors means being and becoming the sorts of people who will the good and seek connection with those within the ripple effect of our lives, our actual neighbors. What does that actually look like? Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. What does Paul say? Love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. I want you to think about the neighbors in your midst. Maybe they're your actual, literal neighbors in your apartment complex or your um, street. Maybe they're, they're coworkers or maybe they're classmates. Maybe specifically, it's a coworker or a classmate that just sort of rubs you the wrong way. This specific person, you have a real hard time loving them. Or maybe it's somebody within your social circles. Think about an actual neighbor. What would it look like to protect them? The word protect in the Greek is the Greek word stego. It literally comes from the the Greek word for roof. Love covers those who are in need of shelter. Emotional shelter psychological shelter, spiritual shelter. What would it look like for you to protect that neighbor, to cover over them instead of exposing them? The word trust is the Greek word pisteo. It's the word from which we get the English word faith. In fact, throughout the New Testament, it is most often translated faith. What would it look like for you to assume the best about this neighbor, to risk being hurt, by putting faith in this person, assuming the best about them, trusting them, even if they have not earned your trust. Now, just pastorally, what I am not saying is intentionally keep yourself in harm's way. There are some relationships that are abusive and actually the most loving thing you can do in those situations is to pull yourself out of the situation, to minimize the other person's ability to continue dehumanizing themselves by abusing you. But in many cases, it's not abuse. It's just annoyance. You know what I mean? You just Their personality rubs you the wrong way. The way they do things, the way they chew their food, you're just like, ah. You know? What would it look like for you to assume the best about them? What would it look like for you to hope on their behalf? Eugene Peterson says, hoping does not mean doing nothing. It's not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. What would it look like for you to hope for this person, maybe when they are hopeless? And in the midst of all of that, what would it look like for you to persevere in your relationship with this neighbor? To persevere, to endure, Loving our neighbors means providing cover when necessary, believing the best in their humanity, embodying and expressing our hope in Christ toward them, and enduring whatever challenges we face in continuing to love them well. 
Tim Keller, the late, great Tim Keller, he wrote this. When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone, how much you are willing to lose for the sake of this person. How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? Ask yourself that question when it comes to the neighbor in your midst. I'm gonna invite Chris and the team to come back up. We're gonna sing and respond. Now, as we do, um, let me show you a photo. I'll tell you a quick story. This is a photo of a young woman uh, named Bonnie Chen and her family, her sweet family. Bonnie Chen is a palliative care, uh, palliative care physician in Oakland. So as a palliative care physician, she works with people at the end of life. Because of her job, Bonnie Chen has bore witness to death on a nearly ba uh, daily basis for years. And then all of a sudden, after many years of helping patients navigate impending death, in the summer of 2022, her youngest child, a 16-month-old son, died tragically. And she went from being a doctor whose profession was navigating grief and care to being a mother actually living in grief. In April of 2023, she wrote a letter in the San Francisco Chronicle, and it was addressed, Dear Patient. Bonnie Chen wrote a letter to every patient that she had ever cared for in her entire medical career. I want to read for you a section of her letter. Bonnie Chen wrote this. In this moment, living daily with grief and pain and longing, feeling rage and fear and dread seemingly in the same instant, I find my mind wandering to you, dear patient, and seeing you in a whole new light. I do not have all the answers, even for myself, perhaps most of all for myself. I do not have pat advice for how to move through grief and sorrow. I only know that my weeping heart reaches into the past to those days when I sat with you and out into the future to when I hope to sit with you again. And this time, I name myself as your companion. I grieve with you. I am with you. May we all feel less alone, even as we bleed. Love your doctor. Doctors are not supposed to tell their patients they love them. That's not common practice. It's frowned upon. But Bonnie Chen isn't a doctor writing to a patient. She is a mother in pain writing to other human beings in pain. And in the middle of that pain, unexpectedly and miraculously, there is what? Love. Love your doctor. This is what it looks like when we enter pain. Extend compassion, will the good, and seek connection. This is what it looks like to love our neighbor 
not to sprinkle some charity from a distance, a comfortable distance out of the excesses that we have, but to enter into the pain and to say, may we feel less alone even as we bleed. This is what it looks like to love our neighbors. In the words of Micah 6, 8, this is what it looks like to live a life of justice and mercy and humbly walking with the God who has extended so much love toward us. A God who is so far off and so distant from who we are, so much greater, so much better. What does that God do? He comes in flesh and blood and bone. We celebrated that by taking the bread and the cup. He gives of his own body. What did Jesus do? Jesus entered pain. And that's how we are called to love. That's what it looks like to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God as we love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and sing together.